Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, October 15th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Hi, Julie. Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi, how's it going? And Shafali Luthra of The 19th. Hello. Later in this episode, we will play my interview with Ashish Jha, Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. Dr. Jha has an update for us on all things COVID. But first, let us get to the news. And we are going to talk in some length about the uh, Supreme Court hearings for Trump nominee Amy Coney Barrett. But first, um, Mel, can you give us an update on these on again, off again uh, COVID stimulus talks, which I think the last we talked were off again after the president said that he didn't want a bill. Then obviously he changed his mind. So where are we? Yeah, it did not take long after the president last week called them off to decide that, in fact, that was not what he wanted and to try to get his deputy secretary of the Treasury, Stephen Mnuchin, to restart negotiations. I think that was a less than 24 hour turnaround. And Secretary Mnuchin and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have been continuing to have these phone calls, if not every day of the past week, then most days of the past week. But it doesn't necessarily seem like they are making a lot of progress. I think one of the more notable things in the last couple of days is that House Democrats, who are typically pretty deferential to Speaker Pelosi in negotiations like these, you're starting to see a couple of cracks and not just in one wing of the party. Um, you know, Notably, a progressive member, Representative Ro Khanna of California, he came out a few days ago urging the House Speaker to take Mnuchin's offer, which I think was notable because this is a more progressive member. This is not a member in a tough re-election race in a couple of weeks. Those members have also sort of, you know, been starting to suggest that they would be more open to taking the White House House's offer right now, which is, I believe, at about $1.8 trillion. But we're continuing to see um, negotiations continue just this morning. Mnuchin suggested that perhaps the White House would be more amenable than they had been to the House Democrats' plans for testing um, that would be involved in the package. So he had suggested that he may, you know, suggest to the Speaker today that that doesn't need to be a holdup, that, you know, you know, the, the differences aren't that big there. So we'll see what happens. I do think there's a lot of skepticism of the, at this point of even if Pelosi and Mnuchin are able to strike a deal is there an, are there enough Senate Republicans who would be willing to support this? There are a lot of Senate Republicans who are balking at spending that much money. Um, and it's difficult because of that to see that they would announce a deal without some sort of commitment that this deal is actually going to become law before the election. So we'll see what happens in the next coming days. These are the talks that you know seem to never die, but never quite seem to be completely alive. <laughs> I know. We're, I mean, we're 19 days out from the election. I think it would be a first if lawmakers actually passed a bill of this magnitude this close to the election. I can't remember that ever happening. No. And even if it did happen, it would be unlikely that any of this relief would basically reach anybody before Election Day. But the the politics of this are just sort of mystifying because, as you know, Democrats keep pointing out, it should not be in their interest to pass a big economic booster 
right before the election when the economy is one of the few issues that the president does fairly well on. So, I mean, it's it's against their political interest to be doing this. It's probably the, the people who probably have the most to gain are Senate Republicans who don't want to spend any more money. So it's sort of mystifying. This is all still going on. Yeah, it is. Like I like I, we've talked so many times about these talks and, you know, are they alive? Are they dead? But I, I do think that it is difficult to see them fully coming together. But this is a year that's been difficult to see a lot of things happening. So never say never on these things. Amen. All right. So COVID cases are spiking in three quarters of the states. But President Trump is nevertheless doing mostly maskless rallies in key swing states. And while the rest of the Senate is in recess, the Senate Judiciary Committee is spending long days together holding hearings for Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett. Um, Barring something unforeseen at this point, it looks like Democrats can't block Barrett's confirmation prior to the election. So it seems instead they decided to use the hearings to speak to the American public about what's at stake in the election, particularly the Affordable Care Act and that Supreme Court case that will be heard November 10th that puts the law in potential mortal peril. By the way, if you want to know more about that case, you should be sure to listen to last week's podcast where I interviewed SCOTUS Blog's co-founder, Amy Howe. Meanwhile, do you guys think the Democrats' ACA strategy is working here? I mean, since they can't really score points against Barrett, they're just going to score points against Republicans in general? They seem to be having some success. First of all, they've been consistently on message throughout the entire week. Um, They've gotten a lot of news coverage focused on how Democrats are focusing on this. And they've gotten Republicans to talk a lot about the Affordable Care Act to say that they don't think the Supreme Court is going to strike it down, regardless of the fact that that's what the Trump administration and Republican state officials from across the country are asking the Supreme Court to do. It seems that they have accepted they're not going to be able to stop Barrett from getting on the court. And they're instead going to try to unify this Democratic focus that, you know, Joe Biden has been really focused in recent weeks on this. They are going to continue to try to make these hearings sort of an extension of the campaign trail. You have, I believe it's four members of the Judiciary Committee Republicans who are up for re-election in states where, you know, their opponents are trying to make the ACA a big deal in their races. So I want to talk about the optics of these hearings. Um, Slight spoiler, I talked about modeling good behavior in my interview with Ashish Jha that you'll hear in a little while. While it appears that most people were wearing masks in the audience and among staff, the senator certainly did not while they were talking, including Senators Mike Lee and Tom Tillis, who apparently contracted COVID themselves at the White House event uh, to announce Barrett's nomination. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows refused to talk to reporters with his mask on and walked away instead when they asked him to please put it on. Uh, And at one point, Barrett herself was asked to take her mask off. Are Republicans actively trying to spread the virus? This does not seem politically advantageous. I think you're right, Julie. It's one of these really weird things where the disconnect between Republican lawmakers and Republican voters is really stark, right? Because everybody thinks that wearing masks is more or less a good idea. And it's a really strange line in the sand to have drawn. And I suspect that Republican lawmakers don't realize just how alienating it is for voters. Um, I'm thinking of a lot of voters I've talked to lately who have faced the virus firsthand, who are of all political stripes. And 
hearing lawmakers downplay the risks is something that they find really offensive and insulting. And it just seems that that is a voice that hasn't really made its way to Capitol Hill. I would note at this point that we've just learned that Kamala Harris is going to uh, isolate for at least a couple of days after two of her staffers, to whom she was only sort of tangentially exposed, um, tested positive. And I would also note that she, during the hearings, was one of the few uh, members who never did show up in person. She did everything via teleconference. She and Patrick Leahy, who's well into his 80s. I was, I will say, surprised at how many of the older senators were willing to sit in that room for hours upon hours with people somewhat masked and somewhat not. It is. It worries me that the images this is creating for the public, because I don't think people always really understand the best behaviors right now. And it, it being inside is seen as high, is fairly dangerous, particularly for long periods of time, even if you're mass. Um, you really want to be somewhere where the air circulation and ventilation is of high quality. And even then, I think uh, most public health experts would say to avoid that. So to have the top leadership of our country all kind of crammed into a space for hours on end all day, to me, it how can the public kind of understand what to do if they're doing it? If it's okay for them, why is it not okay for us? And um, it seems to just repeat some of the themes we've seen throughout this crisis that people are not getting um, clear, consistent messaging. Julie, you you talked about setting an example for the public, and that's, you know, something that we look to our federal leadership to do. The members of the committee were following CDC guidelines. This is something that Chairman Lindsey Graham talked about a lot, that the room had been outfitted. Everyone was six feet apart. They were only not wearing masks. You know, I think when they was spoke, probably correct. broken at some points. But when they spoke, Senators Lee and Tillis returned after their 10 day isolation period as determined by the CDC. But it's not a great example. And it's not what, how a lot of people are thinking. I mean, Chuck Grassley was sitting there. He's 87 years old and third in line to the presidency. Like, is it a good idea to do that? Maybe not. Are they technically following the guidelines? Yes. Okay, yeah, you can say you're doing all of this. That's fine. But Senator Harris's staff had said out of an abundance of caution, she's not going to go because she has asked for a testing regimen that's not put in place. And hopefully she does not come down with the virus. It sounds like her risk of exposure was very limited, but maybe it's a good thing on the off chance that she does test positive in the coming days. I think we'd all be more confident in the fact that she wasn't in the room than we would have been if she was there. You mentioned that they were technically meeting CDC guidelines, but another interesting factor about this hearing for me was that in D.C., um, which obviously the Capitol is located in, technically, um, I think gatherings of more than 50 people, I believe, indoors are not permitted right now. And while the federal government and their property in D.C. is sort of exempt from that, it's confusing, again, for the public to see these bigger gatherings that are technically permitted. It shows how there's kind of inconsistency around guidelines. And I do think the contrast is really striking, right? You just had Tony Fauci saying that people should reconsider their Thanksgiving plans, right? Like if you have to travel and you have older relatives, maybe don't this year. It just seems that being told that in one year and then watching a lawmaker is not able to to make similar changes or sacrifices is, is a really tough thing to ask and tell the American people. Especially when they do have the technology to do it, right? We've seen plenty of hearings operate fairly remotely. We've I, I know people sort of said, you know, 
Kamala Harris's audio wasn't perfect. But for the most part, if something can be done modified, it should be. And you should really kind of be leaving those risk-taking times for when you absolutely have to be in person. In the middle of COVID and the ACA, what would have been the marquee issue, uh, if not for all of that, uh, would have been abortion in these hearings. Barrett is pretty clearly very anti-abortion, possibly even in favor of bans on birth control. She refused to say whether she thought the landmark case striking down a ban on birth control was correctly decided. Um, But of course, she declined to say anything specific about her position. So did we learn anything about it? And do we have any reason to believe that she would not vote to overturn Roe if given the chance? I don't think we really know enough either way at this point, right? I mean, her personal views are very clear from the litany of lectures she has given, from the advertisements she has signed on to, from the writings she has done. She has maintained that her personal views would not affect how she would rule, but she hasn't given us any indication as to how she would think through the legal theories. And I don't know, I've talked to, to other legal experts who made the point that it's really hard to separate your personal views from how you interpret the law. That just seems that that's a really arbitrary and difficult line to assume that you can follow. Although, I mean, we saw Justice Roberts do exactly that this past session with the Louisiana abortion case. And we I mean, we know that Roberts is is quite anti-abortion and he has been on the anti-abortion side of most of the cases that have come up while he's been on the court. But this was he thought that this Louisiana case was a case where the law and the precedent was more important than and he was on the other side of the case that he was upholding the Texas case that he thought the Louisiana law was too close to, which was really sort of an an interesting, you know, this this is what what you think as a person and what you think as a jurist are not the same thing. But we haven't seen that all the time. And we have this sort of we've now gotten to this weird kabuki theater place in Supreme Court nomination hearings where senators say they won't vote for somebody who they don't know to be ready to overturn Roe. The president said, you know, the quiet part out loud, as he always does, that he wouldn't appoint anybody who wasn't ready to overturn Roe. And by the way, also ready to overturn the ACA and ensure his election if it goes to court. But, you know, then you have the nominee herself insisting that she hasn't promised anybody anything. So who do we believe here? I do think the other thing to consider, right, is that she herself said that she wouldn't put Roe v. Wade in the same category as a Brown versus Board of Education, right, where where there is a settled, firm precedent. Um, she seems to think that there is more room to to rethink what the court has said, which does kind of fit into to the remarks that she often makes, right, that when, in her, in her words, if there is still active debate about something, then is it the court's role to, to enforce these things or is it up to an act of Congress or state legislatures? Um, I think a lot of folks are reading that as sort of a key to understanding how she might think about these things. I don't think she did or said anything in the hearings to make anyone think anything differently of how we went into these hearings, which is that she is probably a vote with the conservatives to overturn Roe. But I think that more likely, it's difficult to say that just because we we know that what's more likely to come to the court before a full overturn of Roe is additional restrictions on abortion. So it's probably a more certain vote on that than Roe specifically. Um, and to your point, Julie, justices always surprise us um, with their ruling. So you never want to say like, this is exactly how they're going to do it. But I think that part of what Shafali was saying about not talking about it's super precedent, you know, also comes down to these cases that aren't necessarily going to overturn Roe, but more restrictions on abortion are probably also more likely to come up before her. 
All right. Well, I want to want to move off of Capitol Hill, but still in the realm of politics. Um, as we've discussed here regularly, science has taken a beating this year, but now science seems to be punching back. Last week, the New England Journal of Medicine published its first presidential endorsement in its 208-year history, calling on its readers to vote for Joe Biden because the editors wrote, "quote Our leaders have taken a crisis and turned it into a tragedy." Uh, Nijem follows the lead of Scientific American, which last month endorsed Biden in its first presidential pick in its 175-year history. They said, quote, Trump's rejection of evidence and public health measures have been catastrophic in the U.S. My question for you guys is, is this going to have any impact? Certainly there are lots of Republican-leaning voters among the readers of both publications, I would think, particularly in Nijem, which is mostly read by doctors. But will any of them be swayed by scientific journal endorsements? Is anyone swayed by any sort of endorsements? <laughs> well, but you have to. I mean, newspapers at least endorse all the time. Um, and, you know, it, it just seems odd for, you know, for these sort of scientific journals. I mean, is it I, I think it's, you know, and none of them. It's like we, we're, we're doing this endorsement because we think Joe Biden is so great. They were both. We're doing this endorsement because we think that Donald Trump is an existential threat to science. Yeah, the interesting thing about the New England Journal of Medicine um, editorial to me was it had a very ominous tone. It never mentions Trump by name. It also never mentions Biden by name. And I think in some ways that elevated the tone to me of the importance of it by not mentioning it and just focusing in on how bleak they see the handling of the current crisis. It's hard to know how much it it sways. I don't think the average voter is reading the New England Journal of Medicine, though they may read the coverage of it and the coverage of you know, Scientific American making a similar decision. I saw Nature, um, another prominent journal, came out and endorsed Biden. Um, one of the Lancet journals came out and endorsed Biden. So perhaps you start to see the buildup of that and the coverage of that making a difference. And certainly it's very symbolic for these organizations that have tried so hard to kind of stay above the political fray or act like politics is sort of outside of their realm to come up and say, like, there's this big line that has been drawn and we can't stay silent. And I think going off of the idea of the symbolism, right, is, I mean, there's certainly a world where you can see some undecided voters reading this coverage of these cumulative endorsements. But I am also fairly skeptical that endorsements really matter for the like handful of undecided voters in this country. What I would imagine is that they are more symptomatic or reflective of the reconsideration a lot of people are making, right? These don't create a change, but they show that so many people are really dramatically reconsidering deeply held priors they once had. I also think, agreed, this is not probably swaying a lot of undecided voters, but it does, it is another example of how the pandemic and this moment in time has really politicized public health, that these organizations that typically have strayed, tried to stray so far away from electoral politics are feeling compelled, Julie, like you said, punching back to get involved at this moment. It's very reflective of that. It is. All right. Well, uh, one more on the nerd front. Uh, Last week, my colleagues over at KFF issued their annual survey of employer health insurance benefits. And surprise, costs are still going up. The average family policy in an employer-sponsored plan now costs an impressive $21,342 a year, with employees paying roughly a quarter of that. In the past decade, worker earnings have gone up 27 percent, while premiums have risen 55 percent and deductibles a whopping 1.5 
111%, and this is employer coverage. This is not individual coverage. Of course, this survey was mostly taken before the pandemic. Um, will anybody want to speculate on what employer health insurance looks like now? Obviously, there are fewer people with it. Um, I, I imagine next year's survey is going to look really different. That was my takeaway is that it's very difficult to look at this. Much of it was completed before the pandemic hit, before layoffs and everything. And just thinking about how a lot of these studies that are coming in from this year, it's difficult to look at it because it doesn't feel like it's reflective of the current moment in time. It's a good reminder that way back when we thought that maybe Congress would do something this year to tackle health care costs. Lamar Alexander put out a very large bill tackling a variety of the, those issues that doesn't seem like it's likely to be considered before the end of this Congress. But I just think that we're going to continue to see this go up until Congress decides to do something looking at costs and maybe not looking at coverage issues, which... We've talked about the ACA a lot on this podcast. P politicians don't necessarily seem very inclined to move beyond coverage. But I do think that a year from now, we'll be seeing possibly very different numbers. Um, a colleague of mine, Lauren Clayson, I guess this is an extra, extra credit, did a story about premiums ahead of 2021 and open enrollment, and they look pretty stable. But already people are foreshadowing that the 2022 premiums that's when you're going to see the hit of COVID. So um, it's hard to look at these and like feel like it's very reflective of the current moment. I wonder if it's this is going to be sort of the high watermark. I mean, at some point, is this going to be the beginning of the end for employer-provided insurance? I mean, if we have 25, 30 million people out of work, presumably some some large percentage of them had employer-provided insurance. And, you know, many people, if they can find work, they tend to find work that doesn't necessarily offer it. And this is sort of the discussion in the debate over Medicare for All. It's like, why do we still have an employer-provided insurance fundamentally based system? Maybe it will take a pandemic to shake it loose? I do think the pandemic has really tested the logic of tying insurance to employment, right? Because you have people losing their jobs when they need insurance most, which is a pandemic. And, and in a different world, in the, you know, that winter that feels like a million years ago when we talked about Medicare for all and the public option, there were proposals from from all of those those different camps that did talk about decoupling insurance from employment, at least to an extent, right? Because you could have a, a public option that employers could shift you to instead. It feels like a real big bummer that we don't talk about that now because it's clearly so important still. Um, I think with numbers like these, it's impossible to assume that or impossible to imagine that we won't someday come back to those talks. Sarah, they were in, in on Earth, too. They were also supposed to be doing something about drug prices. I mean, is that going to come back or do you think we're going to going to look at bigger things when the economic dislocation stemming from the pandemic start to fade? I think that drug pricing is going to be a big topic for voters going forward. It's still polled as something they're focused on and lawmakers in both parties um, certainly President Trump is, likes to talk about it, but it, it has definitely gotten sort of pushed under um, because of all the other public health um, focused topics because of the pandemic. But initially, a lot of the procedures and testing and medicines that have become available have been sort of heavily compensated by insurers or the government um, for the pandemic. And there's this assumption that COVID to some degree is going to be kind of exist continuously on much lower levels, you know, we'll be able to return to normal, but there's going to be some risk of it. And depending on how vaccines or treatments are priced, that could be another thing that draws attention to um, the cost of drugs. One of the um, experimental medicines Donald Trump was given is a biologic medicine. And those are some of the most 
expensive medicines around could certainly run somebody in the thousands of dollars, if not more. So COVID may highlight that problem in in different ways. Of course, I think the drug industry is really hoping that this boosts their reputation because they're kind of our saviors here. We really need them to develop treatments and vaccines. And they're hoping that'll give them maybe a little bit of relief as people kind of realize their importance and how much effort it takes. Well, we will all certainly have plenty to talk about going forward. Um, That is the news for this week. Now we will play the interview I taped Tuesday with Ashish Jha of Brown University. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Dr. Ashish Jha, former head of the Harvard Global Health Institute and the newly installed dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. If you've listened to the radio or turned on cable or public TV in the past six months, you will recognize his voice. Ashish, welcome to What the Health, and thanks for making some time for us. Thank you so much for having me on. So we're now basically seven months into this pandemic here in the U.S., and things aren't really getting that much better. How would you describe where we are as of mid-October, and what were worries you most about where we are? Yeah, so I am worried about where we are uh, on this pandemic. So let's talk a little bit about where we are. We are eight, nine months in, if you think about January is when we first found out. And there are some fundamental things we still have not quite figured out how to do. We don't have the kind of testing infrastructure our country needs. Uh, Many doctors and nurses still don't have personal protective equipment. But even more importantly, pandemic fatigue is setting in. There's been real problems with miscommunication and and misinformation out of our federal leaders. And cases are going up. The virus isn't getting tired. We're getting tired. The virus is not. And so I'm very worried that the next three, four months are going to be very hard ones uh, with lots more cases, lots more hospitalizations, and unfortunately, a lot more deaths. So we've talked a lot on this podcast about the failure of public health communication during this pandemic. Obviously, it hasn't helped that we've had no national plan to deal with this. But what could public health professionals like you have done better? And how are you going to address it going forward? Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about the failures, not just, I mean, it's easy enough to cast aspersions at the political leaders and, and they have done a bad job. So let's just, let's not let them off the hook. Um, but we have, we kind of say that every week. <laughs> but, but it's always important to start with yourself and say, what could I have done better? Or what could we have done better? And here, I think communicating more effectively to people that we're in for a long battle, that this is not something that we just have to get through the next month or two or three. I think that would have been helpful. I think in areas where we didn't have certainty, communicating that we didn't have certainty would have been really helpful. Uh, I think the classic example of this, of course, is mask wearing in in February and March, uh, where we didn't know. And my best gestalt guess in February was that masks weren't going to be helpful. Uh, turned out I was wrong. Turned out a lot of us were wrong. But I think if we had adequately expressed our uncertainty and and then explained why, as the evidence switched, we switched, I think we would have uh, done better. So there are some key issues around communication that I think we could have done better as public health people. How important is modeling good behavior in all of this? I know there's, you know, the president obviously doesn't wear a mask more often than he does. We're seeing at the Supreme Court hearings, you know, most of the senators are in masks, but not all of them, certainly including Mike Lee, who has tested positive for COVID. And he's, you know, I guess he's technically outside of the 10 days that he was supposed to isolate. But I can't help but think things would go better if people who were in charge were 
taking public health advice? Oh, I think it's critical. I, I think it's critical that people model good behavior. Look, behavior change is hard on a good day. Telling people what they should do, but then not doing it yourself is a terrible way to lead. And we've seen this with masks. We've seen this with lack of contact tracing and testing in the White House after the outbreak, like pretty consistently. Uh, and we've seen it, by the way, with lack of quarantining and, and isolation practices. And so what we're basically saying to the American people is that these public health practices are for you, but not for me. They're nice to have, but they're not really that important because if they were important, I would do it too. All the wrong signals then we're surprised that America does not seem to have widespread adoption of mask wearing, uh, is not as consistent on some of these other issues as we'd like. We shouldn't be surprised. Our public leaders are really undermining the public health message. I think that's so critical to behavior change. I feel like we frequently talk about how other countries have done such a much better job uh, than the U.S. On the other hand, we're seeing Europe, things not going in a great direction now. Do we, do we know what that's about? Is that just you know, fatigue? Or is there something else going on? Or is there something going on with the virus that we don't know? How worrying is that, that countries that seemed to have this licked maybe don't? Yeah. I don't, so I don't think there's anything going on with the virus. I don't think we have any evidence that the virus has gotten more easy to transmit or, 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 or more serious. I think it's a combination of the virus you know, hasn't gone away. And Europe did a good job of suppressing the virus over the summer. And a lot of people took that as great. We can now go on holiday. Now we can kind of go back to our normal lives. It turns out the virus was still there. And when the virus started coming back, it feels like the Europeans, and this is a true for America too, didn't, hadn't really learned their lessons from the first wave and didn't act quickly. And now we're seeing in many places, France, Spain, even parts of Germany, though Germany generally doing much better, UK, uh, large outbreaks. And you know that outbreak didn't happen overnight. It happened over a month, six weeks. And for the first four weeks, they were in the same level of kind of denialism that they had back in March. That's been one of the most striking parts of this, Julie, is that we make the same mistakes over and over again. Like, you know, we, we start seeing cases rise. They're like, eh, it won't sustain itself. Like, of course it will. What's going to make it stop? And then it gets really bad and people are like, oh, but the hospitalizations. And then that happens. And they're like, ah, but the deaths. And then that goes up. And like, we just keep playing the same movie. And it's not a great movie, and it never has a good ending. So I know that one of the biggest flashpoints has been about schools. And I should tell you, we had an episode over the summer that said, close the bars, open the schools. Um, but I understand that you're more bullish on opening schools than you had been. Is that is that so, and why is it? Well, what I would say is that I've always been very, we've got to figure out how to get schools open, right? The question has been, how much evidence do we have about the risks of opening schools, What's the evidence on, on the risks of not opening schools and how do we balance that risk? And of course, over the summer, we were walking into the school year with very little data uh, because we hadn't opened schools during the pandemic. And so uh, I think we put together the best evidence we had. We looked at Europe and we made a set of recommendations. And it turns out not everybody follows our recommendations. And, uh, and so some places have opened and a lot more places have opened than I would have necessarily advised. And some of it has gone much better than I expected. And to me, that's evidence. Now, it hasn't been perfect. And it isn't all of a sudden that I think, open up all the schools, no matter what, don't worry about it. Like, I'm, I'm not where the president is, all right? But I have become cautiously a bit more optimistic, particularly for K through five. 
And I know what the costs of keeping kids at home are. They're enormous. And they're mostly impacting minority children, poor children, women in the workplace. And, um, and increasingly feeling like the evidence is leaning towards opening up more and more K through five. Uh, and in areas where we don't have large outbreaks happening, six through 12 as well. But also studying those things, uh, opening and then examining what the impact is. And if the new data that comes out says that this is not a good idea, then we can always peel back. But we're not going to get to certainty in, pen in the pandemic. And so we have to make decisions in uncertainty. And I feel like the evidence for opening K through five in most places is stronger than the evidence against it. All right. Last question and no pressure here, but you're now responsible for training the next generation of public health professionals. What are you teaching that's going to help us do better when the next public health crisis hits? And obviously we know the next public health crisis will hit. It will hit. We're going to have more pandemics, more large disease outbreaks. I mean, hopefully nothing quite this bad anytime super soon. But one of the key principles in the public health world that I am hoping to instill both at Brown and, and more broadly is that the best public health responses come when we work across uh, different sectors and with different groups of people. Like when public health things go wrong, they don't remain just public health problems. They become national security problems. They become education problems. And learning how to communicate with and work with people from vastly different backgrounds is a critical skill in public health. It, we're not taught it. We're not talk, we don't talk about it so much. We tend to think of public health as something that happens in public health agencies and in academic institutions and in the public sector. But, you know, when I look at this pandemic and think about what has performed poorly, let's be honest, it's been the public sector, not all of it. A lot of local departments have been fabulous, but certainly the federal government and many states. What has done an extraordinary job? A ton of private companies. I mean, the, the the new innovations in testing, what has happened with vaccines. And of course, there's a government partnership. I'm not suggesting private sector good, public sector bad. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying it's far more nuanced. And our ability to engage and work with a wide variety of stakeholders uh, that we don't traditionally think of as public health individuals and organizations is critical. And I don't think we do enough of, of teaching about that at public health schools. So that is going to, I think, be an important focus moving forward. Great. Dr. Shish Jha, thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay, we are back. And before we do our extra credits, I have an update from the Bill of the Month interview we did a couple of weeks ago. In case you've forgotten, it was about an underinsured cook in a senior living facility named Matthew Fentress, whose heart condition had already forced him into bankruptcy once and was now facing another $8,000 in medical bills. So after the story ran on CBS, one of our Bill of the Month media partners, a retired college professor stepped up and donated $5,000 towards his outstanding debt. The hospital ended up waiving the rest of the bill, and now Fentress, who is 31, says it's the first time since he was 25 that he hasn't had medical debt. We can't fix our health care system one patient at a time, but I will say it is certainly nice when someone's sad story has a happy ending. Okay, now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Shvali, why don't you go first this week? Sure. So I have a story from friend of the podcast, Sarah Cliff from the New York Times. The, story, the headline is, a $52,112 air ambulance ride, coronavirus patients battle surprise bills. 
And I mean, I think this is obviously a great story. Sarah is phenomenal at taking individual cases of really outrageous medical bills people people get, unpacking the forces behind them and the shortcomings in our system in addressing them. This story, I also like because it ties to a lot of what we've been talking about, right? The ways in which the pandemic has really heightened the focus and exacerbated the crises in our healthcare system already, right? You have this disastrous pandemic and you have a health insurance framework and health payment framework that is just deeply inadequate when it comes to addressing the medical and also financial burdens that people face. And also COVID treatment was supposed to be free for now, in addition to everything else. Mm -hmm. Sarah. The story um, I looked at was um, by Dan Diamond in Politico about health officials in the administration scrambling to produce these drug cards by election day. Trump has basically said he's going to send seniors free money to help them afford their drugs on these $200 cards and sort of backed his administration into figuring out how to do this. And it's a little bit unclear whether this is legal and possible but they seem to be trying to follow through and they hope it seems like at this point they could send out sort of a flyer letting seniors know this is coming, but it's unlikely they would actually be able to give them the cards with the money on it pre-election day. But it's very unclear the legality of this. This would end up being about $8 billion, which is a significant chunk of money. It would tap into the Medicare trust funds, which Republicans have typically said, you know, we can't be spending those down and we have to be really careful about how we spend that money because, you know, this is really the lifeline for Medicare. Um, and it's going broke. Right. <laughs> and, and, and not a very long amount of time either. CMS, um, Medicare, Medicaid has this authority to kind of do demonstrations or tests. They have a lot of flexibility to kind of tinker with the program as long as they can show it's budget neutral and so they're making an argument that perhaps by giving seniors this money, it will increase people's adherence to medicines, right? If you can afford the medicine, you're likely to take it than if you can't. Um, and perhaps they can make some argument this might save costs or at least be neutral if maybe, you know, somebody stays on their medicine, they're not leading to other healthcare costs that would deplete Medicare funding. But I can't imagine this wouldn't get caught up in a lot of legal challenges. And of course, you know, Democrats are crying foul that this is like this big campaign gimmick and Trump wants to, you know, put his picture and name on cards. And it's just kind of interesting to me that he couldn't quite get any of his policies done um, pre-election day. So he thought, hey, we'll give everybody a little bit of money. And of course, it doesn't actually lower the price of drugs. You know, it doesn't make any fundamental change in the system. It just helps a few people out if it actually works out for this one time kind of gimmick, if you will. Amazing. Mel. So I chose a story called Need to Find a Pandemic Necessity. There's now a store for that. KHN and the New York Times, Julie. Um, and I, I thought this was a really fun story about um, the creation of stores in malls called COVID-19 Essentials that sell masks and other protective equipment that people now need to buy and wear in during the pandemic. And I have like marveled for a while now at just sort of how masks have become such a part of our culture so quickly. We have talked a lot that obviously there is not universal masking. There's a lot of politicization of it. But in a lot of parts of the country, it is not as political as in some areas. 
And just the fact that you can now go to the mall and buy a single face mask for $25, like, I kind of want to tell these consumers that they can buy, like, at least five masks for $25 elsewhere. But I love that it is now, like, a specialty store in the mall. Like, you would walk by a Christmas decoration store or a Halloween costume store. I just thought this was, like, a really fun story, and it made me kind of miss malls a little bit. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, you probably shouldn't be going to the mall. But, no. yes, cap- capitalism <laughs> is grand. Uh, my story this week is from The Atlantic, and it's called How to Tell if Socializing Indoors is Safe, uh, Attention Senate, by Olga Kazan. It doesn't. The Attention Senate was mine, not hers. Uh, the story is about what a really bad job we've done communicating relative risks to people about specific things that they do every day or would like to do every day. One One of the ways to gauge how dangerous it is to gather in even small groups is to find out how many cases there are in your area per 100,000 people. But it turns out even that's not so easy to find. I live in a state and a county that updates its COVID metrics every day, and yet neither had that particular statistic. In fact, my state's COVID dashboard will tell me how many people in my zip code have had COVID since March, but no place will it tell me how many people have it now. Knowing how many people had it in March and April is not a particularly helpful number. Um, seven months in and we are still mostly in the dark about this stuff so on that bleak note that is our show for this week as always if you enjoyed the podcast you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts we'd appreciate it if you left us a review that helps other people find us too special thanks as always to our ace producer francis yang who makes us all sound good even when we're in different places also as always you can email us your comments or questions we're at what the health all one word at kff.org or you can tweet me i'm at jay rovner sarah i'm at sarah carlin with a k shivali I'm at Shafali L. Mel. At Mel McIntyre. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.